This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus Patch Tuesday, coronavirus tracking from your phone, and free tools to tackle work-from-home challenges. This is Episode 25. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so that you can better protect your business and your identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawaj Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, before we jump into things, I want to thank you for listening Wherever you're listening to this, whether it's Apple, Google, Stitcher, uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on, if you could like, review, share, comment, whatever you can do to spread the word, it would be greatly appreciated. We really just are trying to educate people so that we can somehow reduce the amount of cyber attacks that exist today and educate people on on the opportunities that exist in the, in the cyber world. Also, if you are in a HIPAA-compliant business... Speaking of education, go to Facebook and in the search type in Get HIPAA Compliance. Join that group because we do educate each and every, almost daily, almost daily I share something on there in that group. Um, <clears throat> so it's very educational for those of us in healthcare or those of us that are business associates of healthcare providers. Um, all right, let's jump into the Patch Tuesday updates because it is Patch Tuesday. This week was Patch Tuesday. So we have quite a bit of news. We already talked about this month. Google Chrome was up, updated to Chrome 81. Firefox was updated to 75. Both of those to address security concerns. Juniper Networks releases security updates. That was uh, a week or two ago. Microsoft Office had some updates to address some crash fixes. And then VMware, I'm not sure if I reported that week last week. VMware, vCenter, ha- um, vCenter Server had some updates to address address um, flaws. So if you're using VMware, I've, I've received a, few, a bunch of emails on that for some reason. I don't know why that's the focus right now, but <clears throat> I've, I did receive a bunch of emails from some of the vendors that I use about that as well. So it's pretty significant. If you're using VMware, update it. Um, this week, Oracle released a bunch of updates to tackle 405 bugs in their software. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that. But if you're using Oracle in your environment, chances are you have uh, Oracle, you have patches that you need to apply as, as soon as you can. Uh, Microsoft, of course, released their Patch Tuesday updates this week. They addressed three zero-days and 15 critical flaws. Um, the zero-day vulnerabilities are OneDrive for Windows elevation of privilege vulnerability, Adobe Font Manager Library remote code execution. There are three of those vulnerabilities. Um and then there are 15 critical patches as well as a bunch of other patches. So the critical patches, mostly the same that we've talked about in the past, some remote code execution, some SharePoint, um, Chakra, um, <coughs> scripting engine, and then scripting engine generally. Um, 
Hyper-V remote code execution. So there are, there are a few that need to be taken care of. Intel also released some updates. Intel April platform update, ha including some high severity security fixes. And they include Intel Nook firm firmware, Intel modular, server compute module, Intel data migration software, Intel ProSet wireless Wi-Fi software, Intel binary configuration tool, and Intel driver and support assistant. So you'll want to apply those as well. Adobe had a few up updates. So the Adobe updates include updates for Cold Fusion, After Effects, and Digital Editions. Uh, as I'm looking at this, v VMware did release another update for vRealize, Log Insight. So get that taken care of. Um, Cisco and Google released more updates. So Google, you should be Google Chrome, you should be on 81.0. 4044.113 and for Cisco we have updates for IP phone web server remote code execution and denial of service vulnerability multiple vulnerabilities in Cisco UCS director and Cisco UCS director express for v for big data wireless LAN controller 802.11 generic advertisement service denial of service vulnerability wireless LAN controller cap WAP denial of service vulnerability WebEx network recording player and Cisco WebEx player arbitrary code execution vulnerability, mobility express software cross-site request forgery vulnerability, IoT field network director denial service vulnerability, unified communication manager path traversal vulnerability, and Aeronet service series access points client packet processing denial of service vulnerability. So quite a few patches from Cisco this month um, just released yesterday. So. Um, Cisco and Google, you should update. Those just came out yesterday, so update those. And then, of course, uh, test and roll out your Microsoft patches and your and your Intel patches um, as quickly as possible because some of these are active exploits. We did get a question of the week. The question of the week was around how to um, protect Zoom. And I did go over that last week in the podcast, so um, I'm just going to touch on that real quick. Again, the best things you can do, just a few of, I, I wrote a blog post, it's a blog post is on nwajtech.com, nwajtech.com, 12 ways to secure your Zoom meetings, 12 easy ways to secure your Zoom meetings to be more specific, but um, probably the most important things is to add a password to your meetings, don't share the meeting invitations publicly like on social media, and to enable the waiting room um, because waiting room means you have to approve anybody coming into the meeting. And so that's three of the 12. And there are more on that on the, on the website, so go check that out. But that's probably, I would say those are probably the three best. And, of course, there's always password and two-factor authentication that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, so I'm not going to talk about it here. Um, so... Hopefully that answers your question. Um, we're going to move on to the news. All right, first up on ZDNet, gambling company to set aside $30 million to deal with cyber attack fallout. In the middle of a merger, SB Tech will have $30 million placed in escrow to deal with the repercussions of a past cyber attack. Online betting company SB Tech will have to place 30 million in escrow 
as insurance for covering the fallout from a cybersecurity incident that took place last month. The company agreed to do so as part of a renegotiated acquisition terms with Diamond Eagle Acquisition Corporation, DEAC for short, a blank check company that acquired SP Tech and rival platform DraftKings and is planning on merging the two later this year. Um, in a filing with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, DEAC said SP Tech must place $10 million in cash and $20 million in stock in an escrow fund. For the next two years, the funds will be used to deal with the expenses caused by a cybersecurity incident that took place on March 27th. As reported by Legal Sports Report, at the time, SB Tech's platform went down in an incident that looked like a classic ransomware infection. Hundreds of third-party websites that relied on SB Tech's sports betting and online casino platform went down. The SB Tech was down for almost a week before it resumed service with international partners, but not with its U.S. customers. The company is waiting, is still waiting for approval from U.S. gambling regulations before returning service to U.S. partners. DEAC, which agreed to pay around $600 million to SB Tech last year, is expecting lawsuits for lost revenue from both international and U.S. partners and established the $30 million fund to deal with any fallout from last month's security incident. If no litigation ensues, the cash and locked-up stocks will return to SB Tech ownership. If expenses go over the $30 million emergency fund, DEAC, said it would dip into another $70 million, $25 million in cash, and $45 million in stock. That also sits in escrow. This second fund was set apart of the initial acquisition deal as a safety blanket for unforeseen SP Tech-related operating fines in litigation. If the $100 million is still not enough, DEAC said it would pursue further funds from SP Tech's current owners. So there you have it, Tom. When you're selling a business, make sure you don't have any pending litigation because it could cost you even after you've agreed to the terms of the sale. Bleeping Computer reports new wiper malware impersonates security researchers as a, pay, as a prank. A malware distributor has decided to play a nasty prank by locking victims' computers before they can start Windows and then blaming the infection on two well-known and respected security researchers. Over the past 24 hours, after downloading and installing software from what appears to be free software and crack sites, people suddenly find they are locked out of their computer before Windows starts. When locked out, the PC will display a message stating that they were infected by Vitaly Kermes and Malware Hunter team, who are both well-known malware and security researchers and have nothing to do with this malware. So Vitaly Kermes is part of the um, Sentinel-1 team, Sentinel-1 Labs, and the other one, uh, Malware Hunter team, is another security researching team. Um, here's, a, here's a sample of the text. Hello, my name is Vitaly Kremez. I infected your stupid PC, you idiot. Write me in Twitter at VK underscore Intel if you want your computer back. If you do not answer, if I do not answer, write my husband, twitter.com slash mal, it's M-A-L-W-R, Hunter team. To protect your effing computer in future, install Sentinel-1 antivirus. I work here as a head of labs, Vitaly Kremez, Inc., 2020. <clears throat> Another variant calling itself Sentinel-1's Labs ransomware is being distributed targets only Vitaly Kermes and discloses his email address and phone number. So, um, kind of a cruel prank. Um, just know that you know Sentinel-1 Labs is not behind this. Vitaly Kermes and the Malware Hunter team are not behind this. So, uh, <clears throat> hopefully, you know you shouldn't be downloading things from from crack websites anyway. These are the sites that take software, legitimate software, find a crack to bypass the licensing keys and so forth, and then 
installed on your computer, typically what happens with those is that you're not just installing that software, you're also installing something else. It might be a key, a key, um, a uh, key, key logger. It might be um, some other malware. It might, might, might be a, a way to take over your computer when it wants to, to use for distributed denial service. Could be ransomware as the case is here. So something to think about before you use pirated software. The state of security, this is on tripwire.com, bad actors infiltrated New York state government computer network. So officials revealed that malicious actors had succeeded in infiltrating the computer network serving New York state's government. According to the Wall Street Journal, officials revealed on April 13th that New York's Office of Information Technology had discovered the security incident in late January. Its analysis unveiled that those individuals responsible for the attack had constructed tunnels into some of New York's servers in the state used for relaying encrypted data. That information ranged from motor vehicle records to payroll information for 250,000 employees employed in New York state agencies and public universities. In response to the findings discussed Above, New York brought in help to determine the extent of the security incident. Richard Azapardi, senior advisor to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, revealed that the subsequent investigatory effort uncovered no evidence that the personal data of New York, any New York resident, employee, or any other individuals were compromised or have been taken from our network. The state is currently working with Federal Bureau of Investigation to pinpoint the identities of those responsible for the breach. Two people familiar with that collaboration told Wall Street Journal that a foreign actor was likely responsible for the security incident. In the meantime, state officials decided to augment government systems' existing digital security measures. They did so by installing additional digital security software and resetting passwords at agencies affected by the breach. Among them was the state's comptroller office, which confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that it had implemented certain measures to harden its digital security posture. No statement regarding the breach was available on New York's Office of Information Technology website at the time of this writing, which was April 15th, so it was Wednesday. Um, news of the attack comes less than a year after New York State enacted the Stop Hacks and Improve Electronic Data Security Act, which is SHIELD for short, um, which is kind of ironic, really, because the state implemented this and they are they have been compromised hopefully data was not stolen you know we wouldn't want that to happen but it would be ironic if it did threat post cyber attacks target healthcare orgs on coronavirus front lines um, not really new news but again i'm going to state it because it needs to be stated repeatedly cyber criminals aren't sparing medical professionals, hospitals, and healthcare orgs on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic when it comes to cyber attacks, ransomware attacks, and malware. Recent malware campaigns reveal that cyber criminals aren't sparing healthcare firms, medical suppliers, and hospitals on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Researchers have shed light on two recently uncovered malware campaigns, one targeting a Canadian government healthcare organization and a Canadian medical research university. And the other one, and the other hitting medical organizations and medical research facilities worldwide. The email sent to those unnamed organizations purported to send COVID-19 medical supply data, critical corporate communications regarding the virus or the coronavirus details from the World Health Organization, but actually aimed to distribute ransomware, info stealer malware, and more. These recent campaigns are the tip of the iceberg when it comes to cybercrime targeting organizations in the healthcare space. Researchers said despite prior reporting by various sources indicating that some cyber threat attackers 
Activity may subside in some respects during the COVID-19 pandemic. Unit 42 has observed quite the opposite in regard to the COVID-19 themed threats, particularly in the realm of phishing attacks, said Adrian McCabe. Vicky Ray and Juan Cortez, security researchers with Palo Alto Networks, Unit 42 team. Between March 24th and 30th, researchers observed various malicious emails attempting to spread ransomware to several individuals associated with an unnamed Canadian government health organization actively engaged in COVID-19 response efforts, as well as a Canadian university that is conducting COVID-19 research. The email sent from the spoofed WHO email address, no reply at who.int contained a rich text format file that purported to spread information about the pandemic. When opened, the RTF file attempted to deliver a ransomware payload that exploits a known vulnerability in Microsoft Office, which allows attackers to execute arbitrary code. That vulnerability is CVE 2012-0158. So if you're using something <laughs> that hasn't been patched since 2012 because that's the, the year is 2012, that means that that's when the, the vulnerability was discovered. Then, then you have other things that you need to, to talk about with your security team. Um, and, and so then it goes on from there to talk about um, what, what types, what they've discovered with these attacks. So the whole point of this is, yes, the cybersecurity threat landscape is um, very real, and, it ha and the, the number of attacks has increased dramatically, including... Um, phishing attacks, which is probably the number one type of attack at this point. And then, and now remember, 90% of ransomware attacks begin with a phishing attack. So if you are phished successfully, then there's a good chance you are going to get hit with ransomware next. Um, and we're going to talk about some phishing attacks on healthcare later on in this episode because there have been some, and there was one where the, the attacker was in for a few months. Naked Security by Sophos reports TikTok users beware hackers could swap your videos with their own. <coughs> Mobile app developers Tommy Misk and Tala Haj Bakri just published a blog article entitled, entitled TikTok Vulnerability Enables Hackers to Show Users Fake Videos. As far as we can see, they're right. This is according to the article on um, Naked Security by Sophos. We replicated their results with a slightly older Android version of TikTok from a few days ago. 15.5.44. Their tests included the late, very latest builds on Android and iOS numbered 15.7.4 and 15.5.6 respectively. We used a similar approach to MISC and Hodge Bakri to look at the network traffic produced by TikTok. We installed Packet Capture, or T-Packet Capture, sorry, app on Android and then ran the TikTok app for, for a while to flip through a few popular videos. So I'm going to just um, give you the the summary here. So essentially what happened was they ran T-Packet Capture, which captures all the traffic between uh, from in your network. As long as you're on the network, it can capture all the traffic. So it's similar to Wireshark, and you do end up using Wireshark at the end of this. And so what they grabbed was a bunch of traffic from TikTok. Some of it was encrypted, some of it was not. And what wasn't encrypted was the get requests um, that show images and videos and the data fetched um, was that was not encrypted plain old unencrypted http request included profile pictures still frames from videos and videos themselves and now because you've captured this information you could swap it out with some other information um so that's the 
that's the newest thing with TikTok that we need to be on the lookout for. And I'm sure now that it's out there, it will be exploited. Um, that being said, I would highly recommend if you're using TikTok or know anybody using TikTok, think twice. TikTok, until it's until it's secured and it can prove that it's secure, I would just leave it alone. Um, <clears throat> on hackread.com. Personal data of 1.41 million U.S. doctors sold on hacker forms. Cyber criminals are taking advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic from selling fake coronavirus vaccines and testing kits to setting up malware-infected fake live maps of the infection. Crooks can go any level to make cheap and quick book bucks on hacker forms. In the latest, a cyber criminal is selling personal and contact details of 1.41 million doctors based in the U.S., this can turn into a disaster for doctors and healthcare staff busy saving lives amid the pandemic. Hackread.com has learned that the database and discussion was stolen on April 11th from qa.findadoctor.com, an online service that lets people search for the healthcare professional, book instant appointments, and consult with doctors online. The targeted website is based in Edison, New Jersey, and owned by Millennium Technology Solutions. A look at it shows it claims to have registered 100,000 plus doctors and 5,000 plus members. The website allows both doctors and patients to register themselves with their email addresses, though patients are required to snap a photo of themselves or upload one from their PC to register their membership. We can confirm that patients' photos or medical records are not among the stolen data. However, the, what includes what is included in the data is enough to target doctors. For instance, the sold records include details like full names, genders, name of hospital, organizations where they work, location, mailing address, practice address, country, phone numbers, license number, and much more. The good news is that trove of data does not contain email addresses, which means doctors are safe from phishing and malware scams. But based on the leaked records, finding the air, their email addresses will be a piece of cake, which is very true, by the way. Hackery.com was able to find dozens of doctors in New York based on the sample data we have seen. Furthermore, cyber criminals can use available phone numbers to carry out a smishing attack or um, even vishing, which is, so smishing is um, phishing over text, SMS, and vishing is voice phishing. A malicious technique involving sending or te of text messages while phishing links to steal financial data or redirect the victim to website dropping malware, simply put, attacking options for cyber, cyber criminals with this data are infinite. Um, and there is a, a phishing, a smishing attack going around right now saying, you know, you may have come in contact with someone who is infected with coronavirus, and then there's a link. So that is not real. Do not click on it. We are going to talk a little bit about a plan that Apple and Google have for tracking COVID-19, uh, but we'll get to that shortly. Um, and then our last bit of news before we move on to our hot topics, threat post PPE and COVID-19 Medical supplies targeted by BEC scams. FBI said the government agencies aiming to buy critical items like ventilators have unknowingly transferred funds to threat actors. Much has been publicized about the shortage of personal protective equipment and other supplies for healthcare facilities in the United States during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the FBI is warning that threat actors are taking advantage of efforts to procure PPE and critical equipment such as ventilators with new business email compromise. That's BEC for short. Uh, 
and other scams aimed at defrauding those seeking the supplies. In a warning posted to the FBI website, the law enforcement agency said it was aware of multiple incidents in which state government agencies were duped into sending advance funds to both domestic and foreign fraudulent brokers and sellers of things like N95 masks and gowns. These so-called advance fee schemes are among several new fraud campaigns the feds have observed alongside more typical BEC scams. The common theme is that they all use socially engineered emails try to, fool people, to try to fool people into sending funds to what they think are legitimate entities, instead directing payments to accounts that bad actors can access. In advance, fee schemes related to procurement, a victim prepays partially or in full a purported seller or a broker for a good or service and then receives little or nothing in return, FBI officials explained in the post. In one case, a purchasing agency believed it was working with someone with whom already had an existing business relationship showing the sophistication of the attack, according to the FBI. By the time the purchasing agencies became suspicious of the transactions, much of the funds had been transferred outside the reach of the U.S. law enforcement and were unrecoverable. Indeed, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought threat actors out of the woodwork with a raft of new scams and attacks aimed at the multiple and complex aspects of the crisis. Many attacks have focused on individuals interest in receiving accurate information about the pandemic and have used email-based attacks in spread to spread malware. One campaign, for example, used socially engineered emails promising access to important information about cases of COVID-19 in the receiver's local area. Instead of providing this, the fake messages evaded top email detection software and spread malware that steals the user's Microsoft login credentials. And another example is Beer phishing campaign used emails claiming to be from World Health Organization to send an attachment that unleashes the info stealer Loki bot if downloaded and open. The agency also provided some warning signs to look for for those in charge of procuring supplies. These signals include someone initiating the contact with the buyer, especially from a difficult to verify channel such as telephone or personal email, the seller or broker being an entity with which the buyer has not previously done business or a seller that can't be verified with the manufacturer of the products the entity aims to distribute. Another red flag is an unexplained urgency on the part of the seller to transfer funds or a last-minute change in the wiring instructions that parties previously agreed to, authorities said. To mitigate these types of attacks, the FBI recommended several steps that procurement agencies can take. These include avoiding prepayment scenarios altogether by routing payments to a domestic escrow account, with funds to be released to the seller upon receipt of the promised items. Other efforts to shield organizations include having a trusted independent party ensure that the items for sale are physically present and verifying the contact information such as email addresses match the actual sender of the messages according to FBI. Schemes aimed at healthcare facilities continue to ramp up. Recent research shed light on two recently uncovered malware campaigns, one targeting a Canadian government healthcare organization and a Canadian medical research university and the other hitting medical organizations and medical research facilities worldwide. So we just talked about those a few minutes ago. The email sent to these unnamed organizations purported to send COVID-19 medical supply data, critical corporate communications regarding the virus or coronavirus details from the World Health Organization, but actually aimed to distribute ransomware, info stealer, malware, and more. Um, another thing you can do to avoid being scammed um, this way, BEC scam, is to verify the sender, make a phone call. Uh, it only takes a few minutes to verify that they are who they say they are. And if you're not sure, then then reach out to the FBI and, and um, see if they can shed some light on it. But you shouldn't really be doing 
business completely over email unless you know the person and are comfortable with the person and can verify who they are. All right, as promised, uh, let's talk about Apple, Google team on coronavirus tracking. And then this, of course, sparks fears of privacy issues. Um, this is on ThreatPost. This has been reported in multiple places now, um, but we're going to take it from ThreatPost.com. Apple and Google announced that decentralized Bluetooth technology will soon be rolled out for coronavirus contact tracing. The pri privacy implications are worrisome for some. Apple and Google are teaming up to launch technology that traces the spread of coronavirus via apps for iOS and Android users. Despite the company's insistence that privacy will be of utmost importance, some in the security space remain wary of data privacy concerns around the newly announced technology. Apple and Google plan to use decentralized Bluetooth technology in smartphones to help users track whether they have been exposed to someone who has tested positive for the virus, also known as contact tracing. The way it works is this. Any Android or iOS user who has opted in is assigned an anonymous identifier beacon, which will be transmitted to other nearby devices via Bluetooth. This is similar to Bluetooth signal tracing technique used by Singapore in a coronavirus tracking app called Trace Together, rolled out in March. When two people who have opted into the tracking, into the contact tracing, are in close contact for a certain period of time, their phones will exchange their anonymous identifier beacons. If one of the two is later di diagnosed with coronavirus, that infected person can enter the test result into an app, such as compatible app from public health authority. Then the infected person can consent to uploading the last 14 days of his or broadcast beacons to the cloud. Any other person who has been in close proximity to the person infected will then be notified via the phone that an exposure to someone who has tested positive for coronavirus took place. This technology will be rolled out in two phases. The first phase will be an application programming interface released in May that public health agencies can integrate into their own mobile apps. Many such coronavirus tracking apps are already available, such as COVID symptom tracker and private, ki private, private kit safe paths. The second phase will work at an operating system level and will work at an opt-in basis for Android and iOS users in the coming months. The OS level version is more a robust solution than an API and would allow more individuals to participate if they choose to opt in as well as enable interaction with a broader ecosystem of apps and government health authorities, said Apple and Google in a Friday statement. Privacy, transparency, transparency and consent are of utmost importance in this effort, and we look forward to building this functionality in consultation with interested stakeholders. Both Google and Apple stress that they are taking extra privacy precautionary measures for the contact tracing technology. First of all, all Bluetooth-based tool is opt-in only, and first of all, the Bluetooth-based tool is opt-in only, and explicit user consent is required. The tool doesn't collect personally identifiable information or user location. What's being collected is the proximity to other devices, not the location of devices, said Apple. The anonymous identifier beacons themselves will will be random and rotating every 15 minutes so that there's no way to track the device they're associated with, Google said. The identifiers that have been collected by a phone will also stay in the phone. The data linked to the identifier beacons will only be used for contact tracing by public health authorities for COVID-19 pandemic management, said Google and Apple. 
Despite Apple and Google's emphasis on privacy, some remain concerned about its implications, particularly with collecting, handling, and handling of sensitive healthcare data, which would be a concern of mine. And Google's been trying to get their hands on, on PHI for a while now and have succeeded in some, some cases. Sergio Caldogarone, Vice President of Threat Intelligence at Dragos, for instance, outlined his concerns with the technology in a Twitter thread, calling it literally a real-time walking health report. He also worried that the data would be used to discriminate against people as fear of coronavirus will rise as we leave large-scale quarantine. The explosion of coronavirus tracking in general has left security experts weary. The ACLU late earlier this year Earlier this week, for, uh, for instance, released a report called The Limits of Location Tracing in an Epidemic, detailing the issues with phone location tracking as a solution to contain coronavirus, including whether data is anonymous, who gets to access the data, and how the data is used when the life cycle of the data is. In this crisis, we need to seriously consider how technology might help improve public health said ACLU's Jay Stanley and Jennifer Stisa Granick in the white paper. This investigation must be based on realistic understanding of what technology and data can and cannot do. Thus, we divert attention, expertise, and financial resources from other simpler but time-tested methods that are more effective. In particular, policymakers should understand the limits of existing location data and devices for automatic contact tracing. Despite that, one in four respondents to a threat post leader poll Reader poll, sorry, still said they were okay with sacrificing a portion of their personal privacy in exchange for some form of cell phone tracking that could, in theory, reduce coronavirus infection rates and save lives. And when asked if an app existed that told you who in your neighborhood was infected with the coronavirus, would you use it? Over a third of respondents said they would use it. That was 33.6%. Moving forward, Google and Apple stressed that they will continue to make their work available around coronavirus contact tracing for analysis. Now, so a couple of couple of questions I would have. Number one is once eventually this coronavirus pandemic will go away. So when that happens, what happens with these apps? What happens with the data and do these apps now get used for other types of tracking? So that would be my first question. My second question is we're trusting users to upload their data so they get tested positive and then they upload their data to this app. Um, how do we know they're going to do it? You know, how do we know that that's actually going to happen? And then we're also, like it says, setting ourselves up for some form of discrimination because now if you know there's a hot spot and you know people in that area, I mean, I, I go to the store now and I get dirty looks and I'm, I'm not sick. Um, so imagine now if you know people were sick in that area or you know someone you've been in contact with, you could, you know, we're not in touch with a lot of people at this point. So we you could deduce who you've been in contact with that could be infected. And then the final thing that I'll say to this is this. If um, if you, if they ha if it's months away from being released at the OS level, what does that say about this virus? Do we not think it's going away anytime soon? Do we not have a solution? Is, is the um semi-quarantine that we're under is that really working i don't know i mean it, the numbers seem to be leveling off so we'll see but those are the concerns i would imagine privacy concerns abound hipaa concerns abound um we'll see what what comes of this and if and how many people will truly opt into it i don't know um next up darkreading.com cybercrime may be the world's third largest economy by 2021 this is on 
darkreading.com, as I just said, I think. The underground economy is undergoing an industrialization wave and booming like never before. As organizations go digital, so does crime. Today, cybercrime is a massive business in its own right, and criminals everywhere are clamoring to get a piece of the action as companies and consumers invest trillions to stake their claim in digital universe. That's why the World Economic Forum's WEF Global Risks Report 2020 states that cybercrime will be the second most concerning risk for global commerce over the next decade until 2030. It's also the seventh most likely risk to occur and eighth most impactful and the stakes have never been higher. Revenue profits and brand reputations of enterprises are on the line. Mission-critical infrastructure is being exposed to threats, and nation-states are engaging in cyber warfare and cyber espionage with each other. Putting things into perspective, Walmart, which racks up America's greatest firm earnings, generally generated a mind-blowing $514 billion in revenue last year, yet cybercrime earns 12 times that. Both sell a huge variety of products and services. In fact, in terms of earnings, cybercrime puts even Tesla, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Walmart to shame. Their combined annual revenue totals just $1.28 billion. The cybercrime markets have also split up into groups as the bad guys take pains to gather in secretive, exclusive discussion boards to avoid scrutiny from police and fraudsters. Their constantly evolving portfolio of cybercrime services includes Everything from distributed denial of service attacks and malware to phishing campaigns. Trojans and massive stolen data sets are available to anyone who's willing to sell for them. Cybercrime is undergoing an industrialization wave and offers everything that a regular legal company does. Product development, technical support, distribution, quality assurance, and even customer service. Cyber criminals rob and then sell new technologies or secret strategic plans that will give their buyers an edge over the competitors. Hackers steal military secrets, renewable energy innovations, and more. Cybercrime is a team effort. Cybercrime is a growing concern and also less risky than committing traditional crimes such as bank robbing. In fact, the WEF says that in the U.S., the likelihood of catching cybercrime actors and hauling them into court is estimated to be as low as 0.05%. And when they do, it's usually pretty big news. With a smoothly operating team flogging a broad set of services, cyber criminals can earn roughly 10 to 15% more than their traditional counterparts. But there are yawning gaps between the revenues that different hackers pull in. It depends on the job, the risk they incur, and how many people work for the organization. The top earners can rake in more than $2 million per year. Some people imagine that the average hacker's geeky teenager in a hoodie hiding in dark basement. Some of them might be this way, but today's cyber criminals are more polished. They do everything from recruit staff to point executive. Some groups even have public personas who ensure the hacker group maintains a sterling reputation. This is important on the dark web where hackers transact most of their business. The UK's National Cyber Security Center has highlighted the, that organized cyber criminals have different roles to make their operations run smoothly. There are team leaders who coordinate the work and are responsible for staying on one step ahead of the law. They guide the data miners, the people who systematize stolen data, coders who write and alter malicious code, and intrusion specialists who infect and infiltrate target companies. Further, call center agents, phone people, and, and pretend to be computer support staff. Their job is to install malware on victim computer money specialists launder money. Most popular ransomware and DDoS extortion, according to Europol, exploit kits are no longer the top products. 
but their replacements are not proving to be as sophisticated or popular. Theft via malware has been declining as a threat and has placed the cyber criminals of today use ransomware and DDoS extortion, which are easier to monetize. For example, take booter services. These are mercenary DDoS soldiers who use large-scale botnets or manipulated cloud accounts to produce a malicious flood of data that stops IT cold. Their attacks can last for days and cost anywhere between $10 for a small attack to thousands of dollars for more complex jobs. They could be part of a ransom scheme, vandalism, or sabotage, or simply a way to disguise a multi-vector attack while occupying the victim's IT resources. The University of Cambridge was found that such assaults have become so common that the purchasers even include school-aged children. Europol's Internet Organized Crime Threat Assessment 2019 report describes how DDoS attacks are one of the most serious threats facing global business. They, the preferred DDoS targets of victims of criminals last year were banks and other financial institutions, public organizations such as police departments and local governments, travel agents, internet infrastructure, and online gaming were also favorite victims. Some bad actors were arrested, but they failed to make a dent in the growth rate of DDoS attacks or on the dark web infrastructure that makes them possible, according to Europol. A new paradigm, digital services are essential to organizations of all sizes, from small online shops to global giants. If services are annoyingly slow or offline for hours or even days, the firm's revenue and reputation will take a hit. Once it took once it took a while for news about this sort of disruption to get around, but these days are gone. Today, everyone knows everything almost instantly. That's why using botnets are cash cows for cyber criminals. They can use them in DDoS attacks to extort money and website owners by threatening attacks that will take out their services. Awareness of this and other risks is growing, and other companies and more companies are spending on cyber risk management. Nevertheless, the WEF says that cybersecurity spending is still far from what it needs to be given the scale of the threat. Now, I talked a few minutes ago about um, using pirated software, using pirated operating systems, and this is one thing that happens when you do that. They can then create, they can then turn your computer into a bot, your entire network into a bot if you are using pirated software and then use it in a DDoS attack. So. The DDoS, the victim, is then brought down, but so is your network, your computers at that point. So something to think about. Stop using pirated software. It is illegal, first of all. And second of all, um, this is what happens when you do allow for these types of things. And then finally on ZDNet, I thought this was pretty cool. Um, to me, it's important when we're in a, in a time like we're in right now, a time of difficulty, that... Um, you, you see two, two types of people. You see those that try to take advantage of the situation. And, you know, in some cases, that's the bad guys, the hackers. And the, I, I don't like to use the word hacker. I like the word um, bad actors and bad guys um, that do these ransomware attacks and phishing attacks and so forth. But then you also have the flip side of that. And you have people that go out of their way to try to make these bad times, these challenging times, a little easier. And so ZDNet put this article together of free tools and services for businesses during the COVID-19 crisis. And I actually was approached by a couple as well. Um, so I, I have a deal with uh, ID agent for 90 days free. And um, I saw another one, Alert Logic was offering 90 days free. And so the, there's a lot of that going around. And then, of course, Knowledge Tech, we're offering a few things for free right now. Um, remote, remote support for the first hour. Uh, for healthcare providers and educators, we're doing free remote support completely. 
Um, and then we are doing compromise breach assessments for free as well. Uh, but so here's a list of companies that are providing free tools during this time. Atlassian, Atlassian, the collaboration and productivity software provider, is making its flagship cloud products available for free for teams of up to 10 people. This comes in addition to its existing free offerings for teams of all sizes, and the offer is not time-bound. The new free offerings include cloud-based edition of Atlassian's signature product, the project tracking software Jira. It also includes access to cloud editions of the collaboration software Confluence, which is kind of like a um, SharePoint. Jira Service Desk and the project management software Jira Core. Now, I will tell you this. With Jira Service Desk, there have been reports of people misconfiguring them and opening them up to attack. So be careful with that. The company all has also launched a remote work hub where business teams can find resources like access to third-party integrations and advice on staying productive. Trello, additionally, Atlassian is given educators free one-year subscriptions to Trello Business Class to help them stay organized and connected as the transition to remote learning. Now, this is another one that um, has been found to be misconfigured, and Trello boards have been, so it's just a collaboration board, but they've been found on in the wild, open up to everybody, so you have to be careful with your settings. While working remotely is the right thing to do during this time of social distancing, making the transition, transition with little or no warning is unavoidably disruptive, and that's exactly what happened in my part of the world. It was very sudden if it's one day said this is what we have to do and within a matter of hours we were there um atlesian co-founder and ceo scott farquhar wrote in a blog post virtually every familiar feature of office life from the bulletin board where your team tracks work in progress to the whiteboard you're using for brainstorming has to undergo its own version of digital transformation Intermedia, communication and collaboration firm Intermedia is offering the Any Meeting Pro video conferencing and webinar service for free to all new users through December 31st with no usage restrictions. The video conferencing tool lets remote workers hold global online meetings with features like high definition video and audio conferencing, screen sharing, call recording chats, and note taking. Additionally, Intermedia is offering one free webinar pro license per account, allowing organizations to hold larger live broadcasted events for up to 200 people. The company has also published a remote work success kit, which includes articles and best practice recommendations for managing distributed workforce programs. Intermedia is the business of helping Organizations stay connected, Intermedia CEO Michael Gold said in a statement, so as the coronavirus pandemic shuts down offices, classes, religious services, and more around the world, we felt a significant obligation to act. So that's pretty cool offering, and it could be a Zoom replacement. I have not used any meeting, but I may go check it out because um, it could be an alternative to Zoom. Um, 8x8, which is a VoIP provider, earlier this month, Cloud Communication Provider 8x8 hastened the global rollout, rollout of its free 8x8 video meeting tool. The tool gives comp companies and employees location-independent access to unlimited meetings. It works with any internet-connected desktop or mobile device without any additional software. With the global rollout, the tool now offers features like unlimited usage, international dial-ins in more than 55 countries, a browser-based interface, calendar plugins, cl cloud storage for meeting recordings, real-time closed captioning and transcription, noise detection and alerts, and support for live streaming me meetings to YouTube. 8x8 has already, been a big, has already seen a big spike in video meetings usage with the number of new users more than tripling since February 1st. 8x8's mission is to deliver cloud solutions that allow companies to be ready, resilient, and responsive. 
This ensures business continuity and allows people to work safely and productively productively from anywhere around the globe, CEO Vic Verma said in a statement. While not free, 8x8 also launched a rapid expansion program to allow existing customers to quickly extend their 8x8 deployment to newly remote workers. Windstream. Windstream Enterprise is offering a free 90-day trial of Office Suite UC and HD meeting services and video conferencing. Both new and existing customers are eligible. And I'm not familiar with Windstream, so I'm not sure exactly what, what that is. But uh, under Identity Management and Security, Okta or Okta, that's O-K-T-A, the cloud identity management firm Okta launched Okta for Emergency Remote Work, which offers core Okta services for free to all new customers for six months with possible extensions based on this situation. The services offered include Okta Single Sign-On and Okta Multi-Factor Authentication to five apps for all users, as well as best practices, guides, community access, and support and training. Okta has also compiled a list of some of the most popular remote work tools, including tools for video conferencing, document collaboration, and VPNs, and links to their respective free trials. We believe any organization that could benefit from leveraging the Okta Identity Cloud for remote work to keep their workforces productive during the crisis should be able to do so at no cost, CMO Ryan Carlson wrote in a blog post. Ping Identity, sort of a similar tool. Ping Identity is offering six months of free cloud single sign-on and multi-factor authentication for new customers. This offer applies to any number of applications and identities. It gives users one-click access to software as a service applications, as well as authentication for VPN connections. Additionally, customers are already using Ping Federate for workforce authentication and single sign-on can receive six months of free MFA. This will help them improve security while expanding remote access. The trend toward a mobile distributed workforce, including working from home, has been underway for many years, and COVID-19 just forced it right on everybody. Ping product marketing manager Zane Malik wrote in a blog post, Unfortunately, sudden events like COVID-19, the disease caused by coronavirus, can shine a harsh spotlight on the need to provide a comprehensive workforce access and productivity solution than what many companies have in place currently. One Password is offering One Password Business, its enterprise password manager EPM, for free for the first six months to ease the digital security concerns of businesses. So One Password is a password manager. Secure Auth is a offering new customers its intelligent identity cloud package for free through December 15th. The package includes risk-based multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, pa- passwordless biometric access, and phone fraud prevention. Under content management, we have Box, which is very similar to Dropbox. Cloud content management company Box is making Box Business Edition for small and medium-sized businesses free for 90 days in response to the crisis. Additionally, the company is allowing existing Box box enterprise customers to add additional users beyond their license limits for the next month at no cost. Box CEO Aaron Levy and CIO Paul Chapman have talked to hundreds of customers over the past two weeks that are dealing with unplanned bursts in remote work. Um, Under customer engagement, you have Freshworks. For business with fewer than 50 employees, Freshworks is offering free and unrestricted use of its customer engagement tools, Fresh Chat and Fresh Caller, for the next six months. Small businesses can use these tools to manage surging customer queries via digital channels and to switch to remote work. Salesforce has a bunch of offerings. So Salesforce is offering packages of tools and services for companies in any industry to help them stay connected to employees, customers, and partners during the crisis. The tools can be added on existing Salesforce customers, and they're available for free to non-consumers for a limited time. Initially, Salesforce launched the Salesforce Q 
care for healthcare package for of tools for healthcare systems experiencing an influx of requests due to the pandemic. It's available at no charge for six months and includes access to Salesforce Health Cloud, Salesforce Shield for security and privacy, Salesforce Community Cloud, and Salesforce My Trailhead. Additionally, the Salesforce Health Cloud added a free app from Bridge Connector to enhance data system interoperability and and streamline communications for providers impacted by the pandemic. Following that, Salesforce launched the Salesforce Care for Employee and Customer Support, a pre-configured employee help center, customer service, and contact center application. They also launched the Salesforce Care for Social Community Engagement offering, which, which provides access to Marketing Cloud's Social Studio. Next, in partnership with United Way, Salesforce rolled out Salesforce Care for Philanthropy with free access to its Philanthropy Cloud through September 30th. There's also Salesforce Care for Small Business, which provides access to Salesforce Essentials. Meanwhile, Salesforce also launched the AppExchange COVID-19 Resource Center, a dedicated resource to support customers, employees, and community needs during the COVID-19 crisis. Salesforce is also offering free 24 by 7 support, coaching, and guidance with the Salesforce experts to help customers deploy and use Salesforce care solutions. Under building digital storefronts and marketing, MailChimp, until May 31st, MailChimp is providing small businesses with free five-year custom domains to help brick-and-mortar businesses move online. The offering is available to new and existing MailChimp users and is applicable toward domains worth up to $25 per year. Eligible users can access free built-in templates to help them build and publish multi-web, multi-page websites. Every purchased domain includes free who is privacy protection and secure sockets layer certificate. GoDaddy is offering, uh, they launched websites and marketing free, a free package of tools to build a website as well as marketing tools. It is a free version of GoDaddy's websites and marketing, which launched in September. GoDaddy initially planned to release the free tier later in 2020, but the company sped up the release in response to the pandemic. Websites plus marketing free includes the option to publish a website with unlimited pages as well as social media tools, email marketing, one-time appointments, SSL, and PayPal. It also includes a gift card widget to facilitate the purchase of gift cards. Builder.ai is a no-code software development platform, and it's offering its recently launched studio store for free to SMBs for the first three months. The Studio Store is a collection of prepackaged apps beginning with e-commerce and delivery designed to make it relatively cheap and easy for businesses to go digital. SCM Rush is offering free access to its social media and lead generation products. That includes free access to the full functionality of its social media toolkit, enabling companies to track competition, edit images and bulk schedule, social media posts. It also includes access to Opti, a lead generation and prospecting solution for digital marketing agencies and freelancers. So we do use SEM Rush and they did offer, I think, two months free um, if we didn't cancel our services. So um, they are trying to help people out during this time. Under business intelligence and data analysis, Tableau, additionally Salesforce owned Tableau, has developed a free data resource hub To provide visibility into coronavirus data, the Data Hub gives the public access to data from vetted sources such as the World Health Organization and the U.S. CDC and ready-to-use data stream. Organizations can blend that data with their own to track the impact that the coronavirus may have on their business or to make strategic decisions. For instance, they could map the outbreak against employee location data to build remote work policies. IBM has launched a new incidence map of COVID-19 data available via the Weather Channel app and weather.com.
Users can find local information from the map, which leverages data from the state and local governments and the World Health Organization. The company has also used these, these data sources to build an interactive dashboard on IBM Cognos Analytics. It's designed to help researchers, data scientists, and media and others conduct deeper analysis and filtering of regional data. So I have actually checked that the map out on weather.com on the weather app. Um, and it's, uh, it's pretty convenient cause it gives me, um, it gives me local data. So my, my, um, county, and then it also gives the state data for it and OT operations, pager duty, which provides an incident management platform for IT teams, is offering healthcare organizations 20 free licenses for six months. Additionally, any other business new to PagerDuty can get f six free PagerDuty licenses for six months. Whether you're a small restaurant dealing with order online online orders or a large enterprise fulfilling a consumer brand promise, PagerDuty can help you manage real-time mission-critical work in minutes, the company said in a blog post. Also, through its social impact arms, PagerDuty.org, the company is providing financial support to the Silicon Valley Community Foundation's COVID-19 Response Fund and the CDC Foundation and the UN Foundation WHO COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. PTC, industrial IoT company PTC, is offering free services for customers and educators in response to the pandemic. PTC's remote assistance app Viewfora Chalk is now available for free using augmented reality. The app helps off-site and on-site employees collaborate in the operation, maintenance, and repair of all kinds of products. PTC says, PTC says it's like FaceTime with augmented reality superpowers for industrial settings. Additionally, PTC is making the Onshape SA software as a service CAD solution plus the associated learning resources free for high schools and universities. Educators can use it to offer collaborative virtual STEM and 3D CAD classes to students learning at home and on their own devices. Developer tools, Intel developer using Intel's One API Dev Cloud can now automatically get free access through July 1st. The One API Dev Cloud is a development sandbox with cloud access to the latest Intel hardware and One API software. Storage allocation on the Dev Cloud has been increased to 220 gigs of file storage and 192 gigs of RAM. Intel has also updated it with expanded form support, expanded hardware availability, and updated software development tools and simplified access. Under productivity and wellness, Igloo, Igloo Software, which provides cloud-based digital workplace solutions, announced a free offering for organizations that are transitioning to remote work. The business continuity, continuity bundle is free to organizations globally through July 6th to help workers remain productive. It includes a news hub for communicating organization-wide news, as well as a leadership corner to provide leaders with secure and, and restricted space to connect. Igloo itself has recently and successfully enacted our remote working plan. CEO Jason Hahn said in a statement, we have rallied, we have rallied heavily, oh, I'm sorry, we have relied heavily on the Igloo digital workplace platform to help us with this transition, ensuring every employee has access to the people, resources, and systems they need to be successful wherever they are. Our number one goal with the new business continuity bundle is to support any organization that helps to quickly and successfully implement a business continuity plan, support a, a work from home policy and maintains effective and timely communication with the workforce. Qualtrics experience management support Qualtrics owned by SAP is offering free access to remote work plus to help organizations assess the well-being of, of their remote workers. 
And SANS, SANS Security Awareness, a division of SANS Institute, has created a securely working from home deployment kit in response to the pandemic. The free kit includes a combination of public resources as well as SANS training materials that organizations normally pay for. It provides a step-by-step guide on how to rapidly deploy a training program for remote staff. The kit includes videos, infographics, podcasts, newsletters, and digital signage in multiple languages. SANS also released a free Secure Your Kids online resource kit for parents and guardians, given that many children will be spending more time learning online. The multilingual multilingual kit includes a step-by-step guide for teaching children about online dangers such as hyperbullying, predators, and inappropriate content. We understand that this is a unique situation. We want to do everything we can to help the community secure the workforce during these uncertain times, SANS Director of Security Awareness, Lance Spittner, said in a statement. So that is a, a roundup of a lot of the free, and I'm sure there's more out there that we don't know about, but a, a roundup of, of a lot of the free offerings in the tech world. And I could tell you locally, a lot of businesses are doing a lot to, you know, between providing things that said that some of the, some of the, the people in the local area may not have, like there's a shortage of toilet paper in my area. So some of the restaurants have actually stepped up and given out toilet paper, um, free meals, free lunch meals for the kids that don't have access to, to lunch now that they're home every day, um, things like that. So businesses are stepping up, people are stepping up. And that's the, that's the one thing I will say about this pandemic that maybe is, is a, a positive in all of this, um, that people are actually stepping up and doing the right thing and during a time when it's really needed. So um, that is going to wrap up the hot seat, the hot topics for this podcast. We're going to move on to our HIPAA stuff. All right. It is time for our HIPAA education piece. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit about how HHS is kind of, um, well, they're, they're basically providing information about what is and isn't acceptable during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we have these pop-up testing facilities and community-based te- testing facilities. So what they want to do is make sure that um, as long as you're doing everything ethically and there's no negligence that you know, mistakes will happen, and if mistakes happen, then you don't have to really worry about um, what what could come of that mistake. So we have two um, pieces of information from the HHS OCR. That's the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights. So here's the first one. The HHS has issued a notice of enforcement discretion covering healthcare providers and businesses, business associates that participate in operation of COVID-19 community-based testing sites. Under the terms of notice of enforcement discretion, the HHS will not impose sanctions and penalties in connection with good faith participation in operation of COVID-19 community-based testing sites. The notice of enforcement discretion is retroactive to March 13th and will continue for the duration of the COVID-19 public health emergency or until the secretary of the HHS declares the public health emergency is over. The purpose of notification is to help pharmacies and other healthcare providers and their business associates to provide COVID-19 testing services and specimen collection at dedicated walk-up or drive-through facilities without risking a financial penalty for non-compliance with HIPAA rules. 
While the notice of enforcement discretion has been issued, the HHS Office for Civil Rights is encouraging covered entities and their business associates to ensure reasonable safeguards are implemented to protect the privacy of users of the service and prevent the accidental exposure of disclosure of or disclosure of PHI to unauthorized individuals. Privacy controls such as canopies and barriers should be used to separate the testing area to protect the privacy of users of the service and there should be a buffer zone to prevent members of the public from observing individuals being tested. Social distancing measures need to be implemented to reduce the risk of transmission of SARS-CoV-2. A distance of at least six feet should be maintained between patients. These social distancing steps will help to ensure conversations between a patient and the CBTS staff cannot be overheard. OCR also recommends posting signs prohibiting filming at testing facilities. A notice of privacy policies, I'm sorry, privacy practices should be posted in a place where it can be easily read by visitors. The MPP should also be published online with information included in the printed notice explaining how the MPP can be viewed online. Use, uses and disclosures of PSI should be limited to the minimum necessary amount to achieve the purpose of which is which the information is disclosed, uh, disclosed other than when disclosing PHI for treatment purposes. Um, and I'm reading that from HIPAA Journal, so there is a link to the actual um, notice from the OCR on that article. Uh, so essentially what it's saying is, as long as you're not being willfully negligent or, or criminally negligent, then you're probably safe. You're, you're taking the effort to make sure that those that are being tested are separated from the general public, with canopies and barriers, and that your notice of privacy practices is posted as well as, as where you can find it online so that people can go see it there. But along those lines, there is a court ruling out of McHenry County, which is based in, I think that was Wisconsin, Illinois, sorry. Court rules McHenry County Health Department must disclose COVID-19 patients' names to 911 dispatchers. So kind of along the same lines because now we're talking about disclosure of um, of health information when it could be harmful to the people that are helping them. Um, the McHenry County Health Department in Illinois has been refusing to provide the names of COVID-19 patients to 911 dispatchers to protect the privacy of patients, as is the case with patients that have contracted other infectious diseases such as HIV and hepatitis. The HIPAA privacy rule permits disclosures of PHI to law enforcement officers, paramedics, and 911 dispatchers under certain circumstances, which was clarified by the HHS Office of Civil Rights in March 24, 2020 guidance document, COVID-19 and HIPAA disclosures to law enforcement, paramedics, and other first responders and public health authorities. In the document, OCR explained that HIPAA permits a covered county health department in accordance with state law to disclose PHI to a police officer or other person who may come into contact with a person who tested positive for COVID-19 for purposes of preventing or controlling the spread of COVID-19. This is 45 CFR 164.512B1IV. Um, OCR also explained that disclosing PHI such as patient names to first responders is necessary to prevent or lessen a serious and imminent threat to the health and safety of a person or public. While the disclosures are permissible, the county health department said on Friday will not disclose that information as it violates the privacy of patients and creates a false sense of security for first responders who must assume that every home they visit could house a person who has contracted COVID-19 and could transmit the coronavirus. The county health department recommends that first responders should take the same precautions with all interactions with the community. In 
in MCDH's professional public health opinion, given what we know about how this disease spreads, the general lack of testing, epidemiological data, and stay-at-home order, providing the personal names of cases exceeds the minimum information needed to protect law enforcement, explained MCDH. Several law enforcement agencies in McHenry County took legal action to force the county health department to disclose the information to better protect first responders. Two lawsuits were filed, one on behalf of four police departments in the county and the other by the county sheriff's department. The, off the police department lawsuit requested information be released to the McHenry County Emergency Telephone System Board. That would ensure that any officers responding to incidents would be made aware if they need to take extra precautions. The county sheriff argued in its lawsuit that it was not possible for officers to take the same precautions with every interaction and with a member of the public as there was not enough personal protective equipment available, which is very true. On Friday evening, a temporary court order was issued requiring MCDH to disclose the information in the ruling. It was explained that the availability of the names at issue best enables police officers to do their job and protect the community to the fullest extent of the ability, their ability. As a result, the court order MCDH will start providing the names of patients on request, but only to dispatchers on a call-by-call -call basis. MCDH has requested the tightest control of any information that is disclosed to protect the privacy of its patients. So I understand both sides of this um, decision. One is we need to protect the first responders and those that could come in contact with people that potentially have COVID-19, but at the same time, we don't know who has COVID-19 because some people are not being tested and some people don't even show symptoms. So you should really be prepared for all circumstances. So I get that side of it too. Um, we may see more of this, to be honest with you. And the ruling is based on the HIPAA law, and it's it is written that um, those first responders are entitled to that information to a point. It can't be released, you know, ahead of time, saying just in case there's a nine one call to this house. But if there is a nine one one call to the house, then then it can be made available to the police or EMTs or whoever has to to go to the scene. So it'll be interesting to see how this progresses over time um, because we'll see, we should see more, we may see more of this, I should say. Um, so that is your HIPAA education, basically kind of trying to understand what the rules are right now given our current pandemic and um, what you need to know. So hopefully that helps you and hopefully we can avoid any potential issues. All right, it's time for the HIPAA Breach Roundup. So we're going to start in Sparks, Nevada. Orthodontics practice Andrews Braces has experienced a ransomware attack that resulted in the encryption of patient data. The attack was discovered on February 14, 2020, with the subsequent investigation determining the ransomware was downloaded the previous day. The practice hired a third-party forensic investigator to assess the scope and extent of the attack and determine whether patient information had been accessed or exfiltrated prior to encryption. While it is not uncommon for ransomware attacks to involve data theft, the investigation did not uncover any evidence to suggest, to suggest data had been obtained by attackers. This appeared to be an automated attack with the sole aim of encrypting data to extort money from the practice. The practice regularly backed up data, patient data and stored its backups securely so it was possible to restore the encrypted files without paying the ransom. Data theft is not suspected, but the possibility could not be ruled out, so notification letters have been sent to all affected patients. The types of data which could potentially have been accessed by the attacker 
included names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, email addresses, and health information. Eversana, an independent provider of global services to the life sciences industry, has discovered an unauthorized individual gain access to email accounts of some of its employers, or I'm sorry, employees in 2019. Eversana has notified about was notified about unusual activity in its employees' accounts and determined that the accounts had been accessed by an unauthorized individual through a legacy technology environment. Never a good sign. The investigation revealed the accounts were compromised between April 1st and July 3rd of 2019. The accounts contained information from a limited, limited number of patient services programs. No evidence of unauthorized data access was found, but it's possible that the attackers accessed the sensitive information of certain patients. A comprehensive review of the affected accounts concluded in February and confirmed the following data elements were potentially compromised. Names, addresses, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, state identification numbers, passport numbers, tax identification numbers, debit credit card information, financial account information, usernames and passwords, health information, treatment information, diagnosis, provider names, MRN, patient ID numbers, Medicare, Medicaid numbers, health insurance information, treatment cost information, and or prescription information. Um, this is a pretty big failure here because multiple accounts means no phishing training. No phishing mitigation means no multi-factor authentication. They were using legacy technology environment, which is a scary term to me. And then this happened between April 1st and July 3rd of 2019, yet nobody was notified until almost a year later. Um, that, is, that, is, that is a pretty big failure on the part of Eversana. So, and I don't, it hasn't been posted to the, to the HIPAA wall of shame yet, so it's hard to say how many people have been impacted. The St. Francis Ministries Health Systems has announced that the email account of one of its employees was accessed by an unauthorized individual who may have obtained patient information. The breach was identified on December 19th when suspicious activity was detected in an employee's email account. A third-party computer forensics firm was engaged to investigate the breach and determined on February 12th that the account was subjected to unauthorized access between December 13th and December 20th. It was not possible to tell if the attacker accessed emails containing patient information or downloaded any email data, but no reports have been received to suggest any patient information has been misused. A review of the affected accounts was completed on March 24th, which revealed that the following information was potentially compromised. Name, date of birth, social security number, driver's license number, state ID number, bank financial account number, credit or debit card number, diagnosis, treatment information, prescription information, provider name, medical record number, Medicare or Medicaid number, health insurance information, treatment cost information, and username and password. Um, so a couple of failures here. Number one, it was more than 60 days before they notified people. Um, but also this statement here, that this, this statement always bothers me. Um, where, uh, okay, that, the f oh no, I'm sorry, where is it? No reports have been received to suggest any patient information has been misused. We don't know that. The, the compromise happened well, five months ago, so there's no telling, you know, the, the information sits on the dark web and for sale a lot of the time. So it may just be sitting on the dark web waiting for somebody to buy it and then use it. So you can't really say that that's the case. We don't know that. Um, Hartford Healthcare, right here in Connecticut, a healthcare network serving patients in Connecticut and Rhode Island, announced April 13, 2020, that it had been the victim of a phishing attack. The attack was discovered on February 13th when unusual activity was detected in the email accounts of two employees. Two employees means we're not using multi factor authentication and probably not doing any phishing mitigation. 
assisted by third-party computer forensics team, Hartford Healthcare, determined that the attackers accessed the email accounts between February 13th and February 14th. At least one of the email accounts was discovered to include the protected health information of certain patients, patients such as names, medical record numbers, health insurance information, and other health-related data. The email accounts also contained the social security numbers of 23 patients. Hartford Healthcare said 2,651 patients have been affected and are now being notified. The 23 individuals whose social security number was potentially compromised have been offered complimentary credit monitoring and identity theft protection service for two years. Pretty standard stuff there. And at least they did it, you know, notifications went out within, without, went out within 60 days. So, um, Washington University School of Medicine is notifying 14,795 oncology patients that some of their protected health information was stored in an email account that was breached in January. An unauthorized individual gained access to the email account of research supervisor in the Division of Oncology between January 12th and 13th as a result of the response to a phishing email. Upon discovery of the breach, immediate action was taken to secure the account and prevent further unauthorized access, and a third-party computer forensics firm was engaged to assist with the investigation. A painstaking review of the email and email attachments in the account revealed they contained the following patient information. Names, dates of birth, medical record numbers, patient account numbers, limited treatment and or clinical information, including diagnosis, provider names, lab test results. Certain patients also had their health information inf- insurance information and or social security numbers exposed. Affected individuals are now being notified about the breach and individuals whose social security numbers were potentially compromised have been offered complimentary membership to credit monitoring and identity protection services. Um, state the, the thing that bothers me with this one, a painstaking review of emails and email attachments. Now, it's painstaking. It wasn't painstaking for those that breached the account, so how painstaking could it be? Uh, and this is almost 15,000 people, so. And they also did not meet the 60-day breach notification rule. And then our last one for this week, Doctors Community Medical Center in Maryland is alerting certain patients to a breach of their protected health information. The data breach was identified in January when suspicious activity was detected in its payroll system. An investigation into the breach revealed a small number of employees had been duped by phishing emails and had disclosed their account credentials to the attackers. In addition, gaining access to the employee's email accounts, the attackers also had access to the employee's payroll information. The investigation confirmed that the first accounts were breached in November 6th of 2019 with access possible until January 30th. So what is that? That's uh, one, two, three months of access. Around February 13th, Doctors Community Medical Center determined that some of the compromised email accounts contained data sheets that included patient information. A forensic investigation conducted by third-party investigators was all unable to confirm if patient data had been accessed, copied, or disclosed, although no reports have been received to suggest patient information has been misused. So again with that, but they were in the account for three months. Trust me, they, they did take the information. Since unauthorized data access could not be ruled out, patients have been notified and offered complimentary credit monitoring and identity restoration services. Types of information that were potentially compromised included names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, military identification numbers, financial account information, diagnosis, treatment information, prescription information, provider names, medical record numbers, patient IDs, Medicare, Medicaid numbers, health insurance information, treatment costs information, and access credentials. So again, pretty big failure here. Somebody was in an email account for three months and they didn't even know. 60-day notification rule. Uh, well, they they discovered in February, so they've kind of they did meet that rule. 
Um, but this is a failure. There's obviously no fishing mitigation, no um, alerting, no education, nothing. Not a good move by Doctors Community Medical Center in Maryland. That is going to do it for the Proactive IT Cybersecurity Podcast. Until next week, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay secure.